0: part two of lecture three of six lectures on literature by c h hereford this librivox recording is in the public domain is there a poetic view of the world Four, the naturalism of democritus and epicurus then though framed purely in the interest of scientific explanation and hostile both to poetry and to religion as commonly understood was in essence a great poetic discovery the disclosure of a world-view, wholly novel, and of entrancing appeal to the poetic apprehension, the sublime perspectives of an illimitable universe, the permanent oneness underlying the changing shows of sense. These were contributions of philosophy to a poetic outlook of which no poet had yet dreamed, and which it was reserved for the greatest of philosophic poets to make explicitly his own. But the system was not thus responsive to poetry at all points and we have seen lucretius the poet involuntarily creating an atmosphere of passion and pathos attachment regret not dreamt of in his philosophy and there are signs enough that had that philosophy admitted what it fiercely denied those ideas of a living and personal or even divine nature or of a universe pervaded by god which respond to poetic apprehension at the point where the epicurean naturalism left it as it were in the lurch he would have eagerly embraced them now it was precisely those ideas of life and personality present in nature or even pervading the universe which prevailed among philosophic thinkers of the second type who inquired to put it in the roughest way not how the world might have come about but what it meant for the answer infinitely varied in its terms, uniformly postulated that the idealism of man reflected something answering to it in the very nature of reality. Two profound suggestions towards an ideal conception of the world thrown out by the genius of Greece could still intoxicate the intellect of early 19th century Germany, the Heraclitian idea of the harmony of opposites and the Platonic and Stoic doctrine of the soul of the world. Of the first I say nothing more here, for Heraclitus, pregnant as his dark sayings are with poetry, has never had his Lucretius. The doctrine of a world soul, on the other hand, has again and again helped poetry to articulate her rapturous apprehension of the glory of the world. For European speculation, at least, the conception had its origin in the Timaeus, where the last perfecting touch of the divinely appointed artificer who constructs the world is to give it a soul and to make it a blessed God. In the pantheism of the Stoics, the idea of a divine world soul set forth in this grandiose myth became a radical dogma, one of the chief sources of their significance as an intellectual and moral force. At Rome, the Stoic pantheism soften the rigour of national and social distinctions the humanity of the roman law lies in the direct line of its influence in the mind of the most sensitive and tender of roman poets on the other hand the stoic idea fell upon a soil rich in qualities uncongenial if not unknown to its native habitat stoic thought in virgil no less than epicurean in lucretius has taken the colour of that richer soil The sublime verses which he puts in the mouth of Anchises have riveted this solution, if such it be, of the world-riddle upon the mind of posterity. But the real contribution of Virgil is less in any expressive phrase or image, but in the diffused magic of a temperament in which all subtle and delicate attachments wonderfully throve, where more than in any other Roman mind the threefold reverence of Goethe the reverence for what is above us, for what is below us, and for our fellow men, found its congenial home. And it is not hard to see how, sheer poetic instinct, drew him this way. His two great masters in poetry, Homer and Lucretius, had inspired and helped to mould a genius fundamentally unlike either. The majestic pageant of the Olympians was not at bottom, more consonant to his poetry, than the scorn which tramples on all fear of divinity, and puts the roar of Acheron under its feet. The Jupiter and Venus, and Juno and Pallas, who so efficiently order the changing fortunes of Aeneas, are but a splendid decoration, like the Olympian figures in Raphael's frescoes at the Farnesina, and well as he understands the bliss of the triumphant intellect, of man become the master of things, he is himself content with the humbler joys of one who has acquaintance with pan and the nymphs, with the gods of the woodland and the fountain-spring. These were real for him, not it may be, with the matter-of-fact reality of the senses, but as speaking symbols of something more deeply interfused, less articulate than man, but more articulate to man's spirit, than the fountains or the flowers the great pantheistic phrases of virgil have echoed we know throughout the after history of poetry we might even be tempted to say that pantheism in some sense must be the substance of any poetic view of the world but if so it must be a pantheism which owes at least as much to the entranced intuition of the poets as to the abstract thinking of philosophy their ecstasy of the senses their feasting joy in the moment and in the spot have enabled them not merely to express the creed of pantheism with greater freshness and sincerity but to give it interpretations and applications of which theoretic speculation never dreamed we should not prize the great lines of Tinton abbey so far above the eloquent platitudes of the essay on man if we did not feel that pope was merely putting philosophy at second hand into brilliant verse, while Wordsworth had not only reached his thought through his own impassioned contemplation, but actually given it a new compass and profundity, not attainable by any logical process. He found his something more deeply interfused, as he looked with emotion too deep for tears, upon the humble flower and the simple village child or remembered the experiences of his own wonderful boyhood, and these were for him not merely portions of a body of which God was the soul, but themselves luminous points or running springs of spiritual light and life. So that if his poetry touches doctrinal pantheism, which he never names, at one pole, at the other it is nearer to the spiritual fetishism of St. Francis's hymns to Brother Sun and Brother Rain, It is easier to distinguish definite philosophic ideas at work in the poetic apprehension of Shelley. We know, in any case, that they played an immensely greater part in his intellectual growth. Plato and Dante have helped him to those wonderful phrases in which he seeks to make articulate his rapturous cosmic vision of that light whose smile kindles the universe, that beauty in which all things work and move that sustaining love which through the web of being blindly wove in man and beast and earth and air and sea burns bright or dim as each are mirrors of the fire for which all thirst that is his rendering translated out of theological terms of the sublime opening lines of the paradiso the glory of him who moves the whole penetrates through the universe and is reflected in one part more and in another less. But even so, Shelley is feeling through these great words, light, love, beauty, towards something which none of them can completely convey, and in this Shelleyan love itself, the subtle distinctions carried out, as we saw, by Dante, disappear, even more completely than the dramatic play of thought in the symposium disappears, in the suffused splendour of Spencer's hymns. In logical power shelley was as little to be compared with dante as spencer with plato yet some distinctions seem to assert themselves even in that ecstatic love interwoven universe of his his poet's intense consciousness of personality sounds clear through the pantheistic harmonies when he is trying to utter as he sees it the sublime paradox of the dead but deathless poet he falls successively heedless of inconsistency Upon symbols drawn from the dogmas of antagonistic schools of thought. Pantheism, individual immortality, heaven, elysium, he draws upon them all, but none suffices. The dead poet is made one with nature, becomes a part of the loveliness which once he made more lovely. His voice is heard in the nightingale's song, but he is also an individual soul who has passed at death to the abode where the immortals are and is welcomed there by chatterton and Sidney and lucan and the rest a cognate depth and reach of apprehension has perplexed the discoverers of contradiction in in memoriam for the poets aptly comments mr bradley though he is thinking chiefly of shelley and tennyson the soul of the dead in being mingled with nature does not lose its personality in living god it remains human and itself in comparison with the magnificent audacities of pantheism and cosmic love the philosophic conception of nature has enjoyed the position of a great authoritative commonplace it by invoking which the most mediocre poet could dignify and quicken his verse it belonged to science as much as to poetry and to the poetry of a clarified good sense by as good right as to that of childlike intuition it could stand for the ideal of just expression which pope counselled the poet first to follow as legitimately as a century later it was to stand for the living presence of beauty of whose wedding with the soul wordsworth chanted the spousal verse or as the teeming creative energy whose infinity faust sought vainly to clasp but even that augustan nature gathered something from the quality of the minds which pursued literary discipline by its light and no one doubts that in wordsworth or in goethe the fusis or natura of strictly philosophic speculation was but the fecund germ of a poetic creation which whether it answered to a cosmic reality or not answered to deep-seated and ineffaceable instincts and needs of man Only if great and original genius has set its hallmark upon this noble metal, the crowd of small poets have mixed it with their feeble alloys. There is a nature which responds to the greatest and sublimest aspirations of man, and one which answers to his self-indulgent dreams, a nature which is wedded to his soul, and one which is but the casual mistress of his light desires. If the term poetical has a slightly derisive air, It is because a cheap glamour which disguises truth so often replaces the profound symbol which touches its core. A truly poetic world-view has, at any rate, nothing to do with this second-rate romance. Among the poetic ways of regarding nature, there are two types, the distinction between which concerns us. It is shadowed forth in the two images I borrowed just now from Wordsworth, and from faust we may feel nature as intimately united to us deep calling to deep or we may feel it as something which eludes our clasp but holds us by the very appeal of its infinity to that which is infinite in ourselves the first type is too familiar to be further discussed here but the second or goethean type needs a few words for it was with goethe that a new and powerful philosophic influence tardily entered modern poetry, the influence of Spinoza. A quarter of a century before Wordsworth and Coleridge were overheard talking of him at Nether Stoey, Spinoza had found deep springs of sympathy in the young Goethe. A vivid passage in Dicht und und Wahrheit tells us that what especially fascinated him was the boundless unselfishness that glowed in every sentence, and notably, that strange sentence which later suggested a famous retort of his philine he who loves god must not expect that god shall love him in return spinoza's god meant roughly the infinity of nature and to love god meant to see all things in the light of that infinity such a dictum therefore cut at the root of the whole body of poetry which asserted an answering spirit in nature, from the self-indulgent dreams of romantic sentiment to the love-interwoven universe of Dante or Shelley. The grandeur of Spinoza's conception is apparent enough even in his geometrical formulas, but Goethe's intense intuition translated it into human experiences which stir us to the depths. The Erdgeists retort to Faust, Du gleist dem Geist, den du begreifst, mir is one of the most thrilling in all poetry not because it indulges all our wishes nor yet because it baffles them but because the barrier it opposes to the intellect is a gate to the imagination and we step out into a poetic apprehension of the infinity which our formulas seek to capture in vain it is by a like suggestion of infinities beyond our reach and untouched by our emotions that he moves us in poems like das or die grenzen der menschheit or the opening scene of the second part of faust which insist with so lofty a calm on our limitations from these infinities if we wish to live and act we must turn away and that is what as a wise physician goethe bids us do the intolerable glory of the sun is broken up for us in the many-hued rainbow and this refracted light must be the guide of our life but no one could see life there who had not himself gazed on the glory of the sun and while we read goethe's words we evade the very limitations he imposes just as shelley in the great kindred passage by the very image which condemns life as a dome of many-coloured glass lifts us into the white radiance beyond a little ring bounds our life he says elsewhere and many generations succeed one another on the endless chain of their being. A little ring on an endless chain, a little life rounded with a sleep. That way lies a poetry as great as that which comes to the visionary Celt, who sees, waving round every leaf and tree, the fiery tresses of that hidden sun, which is the soul of the earth. A.E. The Renewal of Youth But that way also lies a poetry of man, a poetry which has its sustaining centre not in the cosmos but in the soul to refuse the easy assumption of nature's comradeship in our sorrow to resign the cheap consolations of the pathetic fallacy may be the way not merely to resignation or stoicism but to an apprehension of the heights and depths of the soul thrown back upon itself and fetching strength not from any outer power but from undreamed of inner resources of its own when wordsworth in the grasp of a great sorrow puts aside the glamour of the poet's dream in order to bear with fortitude what is to be born he has taken a step towards that poetry when he finds in suffering the nature of infinity with gracious avenues opening out of it to wondrous regions of soul-life he has entered it 5 we have thus watched the modification first of the naturalistic atomism then of the cosmic conceptions of pantheism and nature by the immediate intuition the eager senses and the vivid soul consciousness which characterize the poetic apprehension it remains to glance finally at the relations of poetry with that third type of philosophic system in which soul consciousness itself has played the guiding and master part It was with the assertion of the soul's predominance that European philosophy, in the full sense of the word, began. When Socrates turned from the cosmic speculations of the Ionians to found his thinking-shop at Athens, and chafed Anaxagoras for having put mind at the head of things and then given it nothing to do, he was preparing the way, we know, for the magnificent soul-sovereignty established by the master of all idealists plato set up a trenchant dualism between soul and sense and thrust the sense world into a limbo of disparagement from which where his spell prevailed it never emerged the body was the soul's prison the senses cheated it with illusion and dragged it down with base desires the transcendentalists of modern germany established a soul autocracy differently conceived and founded upon other postulates but not less absolute. Kant shattered the claims of Festant, but only to enthrone Fenunft. Fichte found nothing real, and nothing good, that was not rooted in heroic will. Schopenhauer built up a philosophy of self-effacement, and world flight, on the doctrine that the will to live which tortures us, is also the malign indwelling energy of the world, and none of them surpassed in calm audacity, the claims made for individual reason by fichte's english contemporary godwin speculation of this type was already allied to poetry by the boldness of its subjective idealism and it might be expected that its points of fruitful contact with poetry would be correspondingly numerous yet this is hardly on the whole the case if plato's influence on poetry is hard to measure if kant brought something vital to schiller and schopenhauer to wagner subjective philosophers and poets in the main pursued their common preoccupation with soul along paths which rarely crossed each brought to the exploration of that marvellous mine a lamp of extraordinary power but they carried it into different regions surveyed them on different methods and returned with different results poets without any scientific psychology have in virtue of imaginative insight into the ways of character, created a mass of psychological material with which scientific psychology has only begun to cope. It is only among poetic betrayers of the second rank, such as Johnson and the allegorists, that theoretic categories of character have had any determining weight. The supreme characters of literature are true creations, creations that are, at the same time, discoveries pieces of humanity which exceed nature's reach perhaps but not her grasp prometheus hamlet satan faust permanently enlarged the status of the human soul in our common valuation of life that discovery of man which intoxicated the renaissance was pre-eminently a discovery of the stature of man's soul how noble in reason how infinite in faculty in action how like an angel in apprehension how like a god but philosophic ideas hardly touched the surface of either shakespeare or Marlowe, and they furnished but one strand in the woof of the mind of milton in the english poetry of the time of wordsworth there is more affinity to philosophic ideas but their actual influence is apt to be strongest just where the poetry itself is least intense in a very luminous lecture mr bradley has traced the relation between the two movements english poetry and german philosophy in the age of wordsworth an exalted faith in soul possessed and inspired both but each was in the main unconscious of the other in the poetry of his own countrymen, schiller kant's austere ideas reappear transformed in the crucible of the poet's livelier emotions or quicker sense of beauty Coleridge drank as deeply of Kantian and cognate ideas, but only when the brief chapter of his own poetry was all but closed, while the magnificent prose poem in which Carlyle conveyed the philosophy of Fichte Jean Paul teufelsdruch stands alone. What Wordsworth may have drawn through Coleridge's talk is not clearly distinguishable from the original bent of his own mind. The two streams ran courses largely parallel, but indistinct though adjacent valleys with godwin's ideas on the other hand both wordsworth blake and shelley had stood in close intellectual relations and these were precisely the men whose poetry set the deepest impress upon their view of life is it possible by the help of either the parallel or the derivative relationship to lay down any common features in the process in the first place The stress on the exaltation of spirit is shifted by the poets, and, with great emphasis, from reason, the instrument of philosophy, to imagination. Reason is constantly not merely ignored, but openly slighted. It is not what they mean when they exalt mind. When Wordsworth tells us in the great recluse passage of the awe, beyond Empyrean or Erebus, with which he contemplated the mind of man, when he sees the heroic devotion of the fallen toussaint perpetuated in man's inconquerable mind when he encourages those who doubted spanish heroism with the sublime assurance that the true sorrow of humanity consists in this not that the mind of man fails but that the course and demands of life so rarely correspond with the dignity and intensity of human desires by this mind he means imagination passion heroic will but not discourse of reason wordsworth apprehending soul with his poet's intuition apprehends it as he knew it in himself he saw it therefore as an energy operating not through meddling intellect but through vision and vision illuminated will with open eye and ear for its indispensable associates and love as its core the soul whereby alone the nation shall be great and free was something in which the humblest peasant and the simplest child had part, and in which the meanest flower struck answering chords. It is not accident that the soul-animated England of Wordsworth's ideal is so widely unlike Hegel's Prussian state. In William Blake, soul autocracy became aggressive and revolutionary, and the breach with reason, philosophic or other, widened to a yawning gulf. Whether he is declaring the world of imagination to be the world of eternity, scoffing at the nature-lover who sees with, not through, the eye, or affirming that to generalise is to be an idiot, a stupendous example of the procedure he derides, he stands for a poetry stripped bare of all that allies it either to philosophy or to common sense. His prophetic books adumbrate a grandiose poetic metaphysic, a world system framed to the postulates of this denuded poetry. And Shelley's apology enthrones imagination as the creator and upholder of all civilization. Secondly, the poetic shifting of the stress within the domain of the autocratic soul from reason to imagination and feeling, told powerfully upon the ethical ideals proclaimed by this group of poets it added fresh impetus to that disposition to override or transcend external standards of morality which is inherent in all vivid inner consciousness. Moral distinctions fade in the inner illumination of the mystic. We have seen hints of such a transvaluation of ethical values, disarranging the iron categories of Dante's hell. Applied to Hamlet or Othello, the traditional categories of good and evil break in our hands. Milton's heroic devil, and the lovers whom Browning scorns for being saved by their sloth from crime, still perplex the moralist. But the poets of the revolution are openly sceptical of morality. Of Shelley I need not speak. Even Wordsworth makes a hero of a murderer, and Blake first proclaimed explicitly a century before Nietzsche a good beyond good and evil, and figured the inauguration of this transcendent ethic in the colossal symbolism of his marriage of heaven and hell. In all these writers it is true, their attitude to morality was in part derived from the bias toward emancipation then current in all departments of ethical, social and political life, and had no relation to specifically poetic apprehension. Freedom was an ideal for Godwin and for Robespierre, as well as for Shelley and for Kant, and was pursued by them with equal devotion in their several fashions. But they all, also, understood it in the light of their several preoccupations. With Godwin, as with Robespierre, it is mainly negative. With Shelley, as with Kant, it acquires positive substance and content. And this is because both philosopher and poet see it as the means to some perfection of the soul. The sole autocracy of the age extravagant as it might be is seen at its noblest in the kantian freedom won through duty and in the Shelleyan freedom won through love the kantian ideal of freedom interpreted in that last conclusion of goethe's wisdom he alone is free who daily wins his freedom anew has passed into the very substance of the strenuous german mind the Shelleyan ideal is of a rarer but also of a more perilous stuff and has touched no such chords in the English character as his music has stirred in the English ear, but something of the genius of both ideals was gathered up and concentrated in Wordsworth's great affirmation, so recklessly impugned, so magnificently borne out today, of the meaning of national freedom. Wordsworth's sense of law corrects what is anarchic in Shelley, as Shelley's flame-like ardour corrects what is prosaic and common in Wordsworth. Together they present more purely than any of their contemporaries the noble substance of a poetic ethic. In that poetic ethic, the greatest word, rightly understood, is still the Shelleyan love. And it may be that if there is any ideal which, springing from poetic apprehension, is yet fit, rightly interpreted, for the common needs of men, it is that love of love on which tennyson so far always from the revolutionary temper either in love or poetry set his finger in his early prime as the sovereign endowment of the poet only it must be love wide enough to include every kind of spiritual energy by which the soul transcending itself fulfils itself and exerts whether upon men or nations its liberating and uplifting power the love which creates and the love which endures the love which makes the hero or the artist and that which spends itself inexhaustibly on a thankless cause the impersonal ardour of the mind which spinoza called the intellectual love of god and the impassioned union of souls which to some has seemed a clue to the vision of reality and to others the surest pledge of a future life the love of country which distinguishes the true service of humanity from a shallow cosmopolitanism, and the love of our fellow men which distinguishes true patriotism from national greed. To have had no mean share in sustaining this large ideal of the soul which makes us free is an enduring glory of the poets. Nor is this strange, as if, as I trust, this partial survey may have served to suggest the spiritual energy transcending itself, for which love is the most adequate name, be the core of the world-view, towards which, from their various religious or philosophic vantage grounds, a number of poetic master-spirits have made an approach. Whether they have found it, as a light kindling the universe, like Dante and Shelley, or as a creative power, shadowed forth in the eternal new birth of all things, like Lucretius, or as the will and passion of the human soul, heroically shaping its fate and divining its infinity most clearly when most aware of its limitations, like Goethe. In some form, the faith that spiritual energy is the heart of reality was the centre towards which they knowingly or obscurely strove. Such a faith, I suggest, will be found to be a vital constituent of every view of the world, reached by a poet through his poetic experience, and the main contribution of that rich, profound, and intense form of experience to man's ultimate interpretation of life. End of Lecture Three.